Thank you, Mike. <clears throat> Um, in case you don't know, we didn't mention that before, but Mike has been a deacon for a long time, so, so now we have three. Deacon just means servant, so don't get, you know, don't get a hot big head, just, uh, you're a servant. And you know what, that's what we are too, quite frankly, is we're just here to, to serve the body of Christ, which is a privilege, so. Okay, we are in Ecclesiastes in chapter 8. Thank you, Rick, for telling us about Tim. We've been praying for him to get in there. He's been talking about it for a long time. If you have a way to, well, obviously pray for him, but even if you want to try to send a note there just to encourage him, this is a big step in his life that's long overdue, and uh, we want to see God transform and, and just heal him from this. So that's a, that was a good, good praise. <clears throat> All right, we're continuing in the book of Ecclesiastes with uh, Solomon's quest to use the wisdom that God has gifted him with to try to figure out what in the world is going on in the world. And he continues to be frustrated with the results that he is finding. Have you ever really applied yourself to trying to make sense of all that happens in the world? I mean, really just spent some time thinking about it, dwelling on it. You know, maybe in your, in your own home and your family, just really looking at it and, and observing uh, your neighborhood, your friends, the city you live in, out to the, the state and the country and the world, really tried to focus on it and try to make sense of it all. Have you ever really applied yourself to that the way Solomon has? Um, you'll quickly discover that you can't make sense of things, no matter how much wisdom and logic you apply. It, it, you're going to come up short. Things don't often work out the way we expect them to because we're living in a broken and fallen world. The world is crooked and, and we can't straighten it out. That's kind of what we've been reading and looking at. And that's because the virus of sin has, has corrupted the operating system. It, it's broke, and, and that's the reality of it. And so, so Solomon is going to teach us what he's learned from really applying himself to observing the world. And we're going to kind of look at three things. First thing he's going to point out to us is that living according to wisdom is a good thing. But then he's going to acknowledge that wisdom has limitations, and sometimes it will fall short. And then lastly... If that's the case, then what do we do? There's something better than wisdom for us to grab a hold of. So we're going to go ahead and read through chapter 8 to start things off. In verse 1 it says this, or ask the question, Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say keep the king's commands because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has the power to retain the spirit, or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All of this I observed, observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know 
that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say that this is also vanity, and I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go well with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So Solomon starts out by instructing us to live with wisdom. Uh, he exhorts us with this idea of a blessing of wisdom by asking a couple of rhetorical questions. Who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? Have you ever known somebody who is really wise? They just seem to kind of have things figured out. If you could go to them with almost any question about anything, and they would, they would have some kind of an answer. Those people are really handy in life. I'm not one of those guys, but I've known some. They're great to have in your life because you can ask them things and they'll know. Solomon goes on to explain what it feels like when you experience wisdom. It says that a man's face will shine and that the hardness of his face will change. When you're trying to figure something out, I don't know if you get a look on your face like I do, but it's kind of that, it's that hardness of the face, kind of that, you know, I'm going to, and then when you figure it out, it's like, you know, ah, your face kind of shines. I remember a moment like this. This is an embarrassing story, but it's true. Um, growing up, uh, there was the, a name for this thing. Uh, we, we call them dressers now. That's the idea. You got the four drawers, the, your underwear and socks go on the top, and then the shirts, then the pants, and then, you know, miscellaneous things at the bottom. That's how mine was. Uh, growing up, it was called a weird thing. But my grandparents called, you know, they called the couch the Davenport. I still don't know why. My, my grandpa would be like, hey, go out there and grab that off the Davenport. And I'm walking around the house thinking, what is a Davenport? It's a couch. Well, this thing was called Chester Drawers. That's what, I, that's what I heard. That's what I thought it was called, Chester Drawers. I grew up thinking that that's what it was called. I never questioned it much. I figured that there was a guy named Chester that one day was out in his garage, you know, in his shop, just building this thing. And, hey, honey, come and look what I built. And she looked at it and thought, that's going to be handy for the kid's bedroom. What do you call it? Well, my name's Chester, and there's some drawers here, so we're going to call it Chester Drawers. That's how I imagined it in my mind. And one day I remember just thinking about that, uh, not that long ago, unfortunately. I wish I could say it was when I was 15, but I was probably 35, 40. And I just remember thinking, why in the world would that be called that? And why would everybody have gone along with it? And as I'm pondering it, all of a sudden I went, chest of drawers. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my face shone like, you know, hallelujah. Now that nobody, that's a silly thing, but I remember that feeling I had where all of a sudden everything in the world made sense and it was glorious. Now that's, you know, nobody wrote an article. I didn't win an award or anything, but, but it's nice when we understand things. It's nice when we don't have to wonder about the way things are. Solomon writes this in Proverbs 3, blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding for the gain from her is better than the gain of silver and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand and in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are the ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. 
She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. Somebody who has wisdom gets to enjoy these things. Wisdom is good. Now, it's one thing to have wisdom. It's another thing entirely to apply that wisdom. Starting in verse 2, Solomon gives us some very practical ways for us to do this. He starts out and says, I say keep the king's commands because of God's oath to him. The idea of the oath, you're saying, well, I never, I never made an oath to the king. Well, we do that. This was normal in their culture for that to happen. And we, we had this thing like we, we pledge allegiance to the flag, uh, one nation under God. This idea that if you're a member of this country, you, there's, there's an allegiance that's assumed. And so you're not getting out of it by saying I didn't take an oath. It's, that's kind of the idea of this. But the first thing he says is keep the king's command. Now, if you're a little twisted like me, my first thought was like, okay, Solomon, of course you're going to say that. I mean, how convenient. You're the king. Of course you're going to say keep the king's command. That's like a burglar saying keep your house unlocked, you know, when you leave the house. You know, of course you're going to say that. You want me to do that. But Solomon observed lots of different kings and lots of different kingdoms. And, and he observed that this is true. That there's something generally for those who obey the king, things go better for them in life than those who don't. Now, the king, we don't live in a, in a place where we have a king. We're not an autocracy. We're a democracy or a constitutional republic, republic if you want to get technical. But, but the same idea applies. Kings, governors, presidents, this is what it's talking about. Those in authority over us were to go along with these commands. Notice that it tells us to obey the commands and not necessarily that we have to agree with the commands. It's important because often we don't. There will be times when we don't like the things that come down from those in authority and we're going to want to rebel against these things. Um, some of us more than others. Some people are just rule followers and some of us are more like me that have a bit of a rebellious streak in them. Uh, generally speaking, as, as, as it, you know, uh, Star Trek would tell you, resistance is futile. Uh, you're, you're probably not going to get away with your rebellion, right? I, I, like, I hate paying taxes. I don't want to pay taxes. I just found out there's something called capital gains tax. I've heard of it, but I've never had to pay it. And we just sold a piece of property. <laughs> Holy moly. They want like 30% of the profit. The government is going to come. It, I feel like, you know, I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. I feel like this is a mafia thing going on here. It's like, what in the world? I, I could say I'm not going to pay it. But you know what? I'm going to pay it. Because <laughs> the alternative is probably to go to jail. You can't win sometimes. You can say, I don't think anybody should be able to limit my speed when I'm driving my car. Well, let me know how that works out for you. You know, there's, there's a point where you realize, I, I can't rebel and get away with it very easily. I'm, you know, I'm going to probably have to do what I'm told, even though I don't like that. And that's hard for us. Some of us don't like to do what we're told. And, and this is true, especially since Solomon has already firmly established that we live in a corrupt and unjust world with corrupt and unjust leaders. So applying wisdom will help us to get along much better than those who refuse to apply wisdom. The wise will obey authority. That doesn't mean blind obedience. It means that you aren't always at odds with those in charge. You generally go with the flow. Now, I've known people who live their lives this way, and they rarely run into trouble. And I've known people who don't live their lives this way, and, and trouble seems to have a way of finding them. It's very common today, by the way, for people to, to constantly want to question and critique uh, every decision made by those who were in, in charge and, and kind of to try to make obedience optional. I don't know if you've noticed that. There are TV shows and podcasts that are dedicated to this concept. They just, all day long, they just try to get you to, to be frustrated and to question and to, to be dissatisfied with everything. And a lot of us, if we're being honest, kind of fancy ourselves experts 
in these matters, and, and we, we kind of think that if we were in control, we would have the answers that the people lack and, and things would be better. It's kind of like the out of shape guy who's sitting on his couch with a, a beer in hand and nachos in lap, screaming at his TV as he watches a football game because he knows way better than, you know, if he was out on the field and it's like, well, that's just silly. But I have found that I have a very high opinion of my viewpoint. And I think that if people would just do the things the way I do them, think the way that I think, this world would be a much better place. Right? The problem is you guys all have a viewpoint as well. And you, you, you know, what you think needs to be done is probably different than what I think needs to be done. And so, you know, you have this thing happening. I would hate to be the one in charge. Can you imagine being the president or the governor and having to deal with all that they deal with? I, I don't even know, I, I would collapse under the pressure, I'm sure of it, and I'm pretty sure that everything would fall apart really quickly <laughs> if I were the one in charge. Thankfully, I'm not. I don't possess the wisdom needed to rule the world. But the reason that we get so upset with those in authority Number one, it means that, that we're not the ones in control, and we want to be. And number two, we don't trust those who are in control. And if both of those things are true, it's no wonder that we kind of get into the, the fight mode. We don't, we don't you know, even you know, try to stage coup, uh, a coup on our, our social media page. We just, we just get into that battle mode where we want to try to um, kind of undermine all of this. So it's pretty important for us to determine whether or not these things are true. Number one is definitely true. We cannot control what's happening. We, we can influence occasionally, you know, by the way we vote. There are certain things we can do to influence, but we can't control it. And, and as much as we hate that, that's, that's a fact. Most of us have come to accept. So that one's true. What about number two? Can we trust those who are in control? My knee-jerk reaction is to say, no. But wait a minute. That depends on how we view the sovereignty of God. And, and I want this to sink in for a second. Think about Daniel for a minute. You remember the story of Daniel in the Old Testament? He was taken from his nation, abducted, and, and forced to live in a place called Babylon with an evil king named Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the guy, if you don't remember him, he's the, the, the piece of work that had a statue of himself built and said, everybody needs to bow down and worship me or they get thrown into a, fi a fiery furnace. He's that guy. Listen to what Daniel said about this king. Daniel 2.20 says, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Daniel understood who was in charge. He said, God set this king up and he'll take him down. And he knew that. And it comforted him. It, it, it's like he, God has a chessboard, and he just moves pieces around on his chessboard, and at some point he's going to say, checkmate. Nobody's going to be able to thwart him. We don't understand his strategy, but he has one. God will raise up leaders, good and bad, and he will use them to accomplish his purposes. Listen to what Solomon writes in Proverbs 21.1. He says this, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Think about that for a minute. He can turn the king's heart however he wants to turn it. If he wants this policy implemented, if he wants this thing changed, the king will think it's his own idea, but, but the Bible tells us, now God is the one that's turning his heart to do these things. God's in control. Listen to what King Nebuchadnezzar said. This is, again, think about who he is for a minute. This is what he said about the matter in Daniel 4. Verse 34, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, 
and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? <laughs> that was the conclusion Nebuchadnezzar came to. He once thought he was in control, but, but he came to realize who the boss really was. And we need to do that same thing. So can we trust those who are, in control, who are in control? Can we trust them? We can if we believe that God has placed them there as part of his grand plan. We won't always understand what's going on, but we can believe that. So that means, get ready, brace yourself. That means that we, when we complain against those who are in authority, who are we actually complaining against? That one hurts, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, I think to myself, if I prayed for these leaders as much as I complained about them, they'd probably all be saved right now. <laughs> I mean, that's convicting. R.C. Sproul one time said, if you're going to put somebody down, put them down on your prayer list. I complain way more than I pray. And I need to flip that around. I need to stop complaining knowing that I trust God. Even when I don't get it and I don't like it, I trust him ultimately. So I can trust the one who is ultimately in control and that helps me to go along with obeying the commands of the king. Solomon continues with more ways for us to be wise in verse 3. He says, do not be hasty to go from his presence or, or storm away from authority. Do not make your stand against an evil cause, for that he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. So be slow in your opposition to authority. Be careful about aligning yourself with an evil cause. I, I love the thought of this one because you remember the, the Pharisees who thought they were doing God's work and God's will all the time. And when they were coming against Jesus, one of them said, hey, wait a minute. You might find yourself fighting against God if you're not careful. We need to be careful when we, when we make a stand and make sure that we're actually aligning with God and not, not you know, against him. I don't want to find myself fighting against God. If you do decide to make a stand against authority, You'd better count the cost, and you better have a really good reason to do it. Because God wants his people to have obedient hearts and not rebellious hearts. And that's a good test of whether or not what you're doing is something that pleases God or not. I know when I'm being obedient, and I know when I'm being rebellious. It's a very different, one thing is, is a fleshly thing, where I'm, you know, you're, I'm, you know, that's, obedience feels different than rebellion. But, as it says in verse 5, the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. That means there will be times. There will be times and ways when we have to kind of go against some of these things. There will be times when we as Christians have to make a stand, even if the cost is high. And here's a good principle to live by if you, if you want to try to figure out how to do this. Willingly, willingly submit to the authorities he has placed in our lives unless they command what God forbids or forbid what God commands. If that happens, we, so if, if they were to say, you can't meet as a church any longer, well, God tells us we're supposed to meet as a church, so we're gonna do that. If, he, if they said, stop preaching the gospel like they did in Acts 5, we would say, well, we have to obey God rather than obey man. If they tell us that we have to do something that God forbids, we don't have to do what they say anymore. 
But we need to be really careful about that because if you're like me, I have a rebellious heart and I want to try to find my loopholes any way I can. Okay, so Solomon tells us that wisdom is good and that we should apply it to our lives, but he also acknowledges that it has limitations. In verse 6, he says, there is a time and a way for everything. The idea of what we read in chapter 3, you know, to everything, a season. I won't say the turn, 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 you know, start singing it. But now you have the song in your head, sorry. There's a time for things, there's a time, you know, for everything. But then it says this, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. So even though we, we understand that God's in control, we understand that these things are working out, it doesn't mean that it's easy. There's times when it's just gonna, it's gonna be heavy. It's gonna be weighty. In verse seven, he says, this is the reason why. He does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? We don't know the future. I don't know if, you know, if you've got that figured out, let me know how that works, but I don't know the future. And living wisely doesn't guarantee how things are gonna turn out. That's what Solomon is explaining to us. We want to believe that if we do things the right way, our lives will go according you know, to, to plan. But that's not always the way it works out, is it? That's how I want wisdom to work. If I do this and avoid that, I will get my desired results. And that puts me in control of my destiny. And I, I like that. It makes me very comfortable. That's how I want life to be. So that this is how it works. We... Um, we have a situation that comes up. There's lots of them right now to choose from where we have to make a decision and, and try to apply wisdom. So we gather our facts. We, we you know, consult the experts. We put this information together. We, get, we put all of our little wisdom in a box and we think this is the way I need to do this and this is the right way to do it because if we've come to this conclusion after doing all of our research and weighing all the variables and this is what we've decided, we think this is right. It should be right for everybody. The problem is information changes. I can't help but think of the things we believed about COVID over the last two years. I can't tell you how many times I was told one thing and then, well, that's not the case and this is now the case and, oh, wait a minute, that's, you know, but it's back to what we first thought. Nope, no, never, you know, it's crazy. So you, you can't, it's really hard to do this. And it's not just things like that. I remember in raising our kids, uh, Joy and I had a very definite idea of how we were gonna do this. I would say it bordered on pride, kind of like we're gonna do this the right way. We're gonna follow these rules. We're going to apply these principles. So we had five kids all raised by the same parents in the same environment, same house, same structure, same rules, same consequences, same values, same beliefs, etc. Wisdom told me that they would all turn out the same. Yeah, guess what? They did not. Now, there are some things that I've seen that they all have. I think they all have a, you know, a great sense of humor. I think that they all have a, they understand the value of hard work. There's some things that are common in all of them. But I thought that if I did A, B, and C, that the result would be D. And it didn't work out like that. Some of my kids love the Lord. Some of them don't. I can't make sense of that. We did the same thing. Why didn't we get the same result? You know, and the other thing that's true is many of the things that I thought were wise then, I would do totally different now because I've learned. We learn as we go. We collect new information and we adjust accordingly. And this means that the future outcome of things remains unpredictable even when wisdom is applied. He goes on in verse 8 to give us more example. No man has the power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war nor will wickedness deliver those who were given to it. The hour of our death is unknown to us, but it's fully known to God. 
you can't excuse yourself from the battle, right? You can't discharge yourself from war. It says no matter how hard we wage war against it, death will win. It's inevitable. You can't, you can't find a way to beat it. Now, that doesn't mean we just throw in the towel and start gorging ourselves with whatever we feel like, you know. It's like, all right, I guess I'm going to die. Might as well just go for it. Life is still better when we live according to wisdom. You know, after finding out about my heart condition and that I was going to have to have surgery and stuff, it was a wake-up call to me. I realized I need to do things different than I've been doing. So I started eating right. I started losing weight. I started exercising. I'd never done those things before. But I knew I needed to do that because that was wise. But the truth is, I still don't control the, ulti- the ultimate outcome. I still don't know. I could still die two weeks from now. I have no idea. When it comes to who lives and dies, wisdom falls short again. I've known people who are the epitome of health. All they do is eat right and exercise. And sometimes they die of a heart attack at an early age. How does that work? And then, you know, I've known people like Pastor David. And he won't mind me saying this. I've known this guy for 20 years. I've watched him eat more deep fried food than any person should be allowed to eat in 20 years. It's crazy. His idea of exercise, he just bought this huge, super large print Bible. And, he, and, and he, so he can lug that around. That's his exercise is just carrying his Bible around. And he said that. I got, I got, it's on tape. I mean, you would think that this guy would weigh 300 pounds and that his blood pressure and his cholesterol would, would be through the chart. You know, guess what? He's healthy. He goes to the doctor and they say, yep, whatever you're doing, keep doing it. And I'm thinking, how does that work? I don't know. I think scientists refer to that as Keith Richards syndrome. That's, if you don't know who that is, he's the, uh, the lead singer, or the lead singer, the lead guitar player for the Rolling Stones. I don't know why this guy's alive right now. It makes no sense at all. And yet, and I, there's a theory that maybe he's been dead for 20 years and nobody's told him. He looks like he's, he's, he should not be alive. <clears throat> doesn't make sense. Next, Solomon points out that wisdom falls short with probably one of the biggest problems that we see in the world. And it's one of the problems that people have a really difficult time with, and that's the injustice that exists in the world. If you jump down to verse 14, it it says it this way. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say that this is also vanity. So good things happen to bad people, and bad things happen to good people. And when we see wickedness win and righteousness fail, it's simply a reminder that we live in a broken world that has been corrupted by sin. God's creation didn't start that way. It's not going to end that way. But there will be times when what we see now, the outcomes that we experience now, wisdom won't make sense. You, know, it's, you can apply wisdom to it, but it, it won't work. It doesn't work the way it's supposed to. And it's because we broke this world with our sin. And he gives us examples of what he's observed in verse 10. He says, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Uh, Mark Dever in his book called The Ungodly writes this. He says, Solomon observes hypocrites who are praised in the world. These are wicked people who play their religious game, coming and going from the holy place, acting like they are godly, when they are not, yet they are praised in life and honored in death with a proper burial. And because of this, others join them in their wickedness. And then he says, justice deferred is an encouragement to practice evil. 
And that's what we see in verse 11, what Solomon says. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is set, fully set to do evil. We think we'll get away with it, right? If sin had immediate consequences, there would definitely be fewer takers. But because it doesn't, you know, we, we, we think we can, we can get away with murder. Scientists refer to this as O.J. Simpson's, you know, syndrome. This is what we saw with him. It still makes no sense. I remember I had a friend that lived in Italy when that whole thing was going down, the Bronco and the whole chase and all that. They were reporting in Italy that O.J. Simpson murdered his wife. Like it was just, it was so obvious. And here, we didn't do that. And, and the message that it sends to people is, you know what? You can probably do whatever you want and it'll be okay. You might get away with it. The truth of the matter is, you won't. <laughs> there will be a day when you stand before God and he's not, he's not like missing any of this. He knows what's going on. The truth of the matter is that we don't take sin serious. We just don't. But God does. Think about how serious God takes sin. Serious enough to send Jesus to the cross. It may look like people are getting away with things, but one day each of us will stand before a holy and a just God, and we'll take it pretty seriously at that point for sure. You're going to either stand there on your own merit or on the merits of Christ. You definitely want to have his righteousness covering you at that point. So we can see and understand the struggle that Solomon is having as he observes these injustices. So what, um, what he has to do here is he has to contrast what he sees and what he feels in the world with what he's observing with what he knows to be true. And we have to do this as Christians as well. If we just, you know, look at what's going on and, and feel a certain way about something, it's going to overwhelm us. Sometimes we have to stand on what we know to be true. And so in verse 12, this is what Solomon says. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. Solomon said, I know this. Even though I don't see it, even though it's not my experience, this is what I know to be true. He's basically saying, I don't understand why these things happen the way they do, but fearing God is the right thing to do. That's a, it's a weird concept for a lot of Christians, the idea. We've, we've made God like a teddy bear at times and that he's just love, and so the idea of fearing God sounds weird to a lot of Christians. But fear displays kind of what you're worried about, what you're concerned about. A lot of people are worried about a lot of things right now, which means those things have control and power over you. So those are driving the bus in your life rather than God driving the bus in your life. What are you most fearful about right now? You know, I've been observing, I'm not, I'm not Solomon by any means, but I've been observing over the last year or two things that have really stood out to me as far as what I see Christians being fearful over. And, and this is where toes are probably going to get stepped on. But I think it has to be said. Two things have really stood out to me. The first one that I see people very fearful about is getting sick. And the second one is losing our rights. Those are the two things that I, I see Christians more fearful of than anything else right now. I could get sick, I could lose my health, or I could lose my rights. And the interesting thing is these things are pitted against each other. The enemy's just, you know, it's a, it's a pretty good ploy because you've got these people saying, I'm worried about my health, and you don't care. 
well, I'm worried about my rights. And you don't, I mean, we've, we've, we've done this. And in the church right now, it, it's kind of, uh, it's heartbreaking to see that this is dividing the church. We have people leaving churches because of these things. And it's a tragedy. Now, before you start picking up stones, let me just say that we need to apply wisdom to both of these areas. God's given us common sense for us to use. Health is good, right? Rights are good. And we should work to protect them both within reason. We just need to keep the proper perspective about them. We can't make them the ultimate thing. And that's what I, I see people doing. Nothing's more important than my health. Nothing's more important than my rights. No, that's not true. There's something definitely more important than those things. Your God. If your health is your God or your rights are your God, you're bowing to and fearing the wrong God. You're guilty of idolatry. Bow to the God that is ultimately in control of both of those things and trust him and his plan for your health and your rights. I mean, I'll tell you what, this has been a rough year for me health-wise. And at the end of the day, I have to trust him. God could have taken me out so many different ways. Not like he has to have an opportunity, but I'm thinking, okay, he could have taken me out. My heart could have failed. Could have died on the operating table. Could have died in recovery. Then I got COVID. Then I got pneumonia. I mean, it just goes on and on. I could have gotten hit by a tree on the way here to church today. There's no limitations. At some point, I have to either stop worrying about this, you know, because I could make myself sick with this kind of worry. I have to put my trust in God. And I have to realize that if he takes my health away or if he takes my rights away, I still have to believe he's working out his good plan and I have to trust him with those things. So I'm not scared of getting sick and I'm not scared of losing my rights. I'm scared of God. And that might sound weird, but if I said it a different way, it might make more sense. I'm not trusting in doctors and medicine and I'm not trusting in politicians and laws. I'm trusting in God Almighty to save me from whatever may come. He is mighty to save. That's where I place my trust and my faith, not in these other things. I was talking to a young man this week about the book of Revelation. He had questions for me. And we, not that I had any answers because he was asking about all the stuff that you know, we can't know, but, but he brought up the two witnesses and he was asking about them. And I couldn't help but think of them in, in this regard. So this has nothing to do with Revelation. Don't get, you know, people get excited. But, but the two witnesses, you remember these guys? We don't know who they are, there's speculation, but they went around in the world that was completely hostile against them, hated them, wanted to kill them. Could they? No. You know why? Because God didn't want them to. God protected them so that they could finish their mission. And then when their mission was finished, what happened? They died, they were allowed to be killed, but for how long? <laughs> three, three and a half days, and then they got up. That's our God. Do you believe that? Do you get that? He can do whatever he wants to do. Same God. He can do this with us now. If he wants to keep me healthy, he can. And I need to believe that. We seem to forget who God is and what he's capable of. And we need to keep that at the forefront of our mind. Okay, so Solomon has taught us that wisdom is good but that we can't fully rely on it because it has limitations. So now what? Now what do we do? If we can't rely on wisdom, what can we grab hold of? And he's going to answer that starting in verse 15. And I commend joy 
For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go well with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the busyness that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find out. Life is full of things that we can't make sense of and can't explain, and we can exhaust ourselves trying to figure it out. And we could stay up day and night forever, and we still wouldn't get it. No matter how much wisdom we have, we will not be able to make sense of things here. So we can choose to focus on all that's wrong around us and be consumed by that, or we can choose to put those things in God's inbox and trust him and rest in him and enjoy him. There are things that we can't control. There's a point where knowledge must give way to faith. It's good to practice wisdom, but it's critical that we put faith into practice. And, and it's, it's not an either, either or scenario. It's not, you know, it, you can apply wisdom and you can trust God at the same time. They're, they're both good. So this is the, you know, the, the big discussion about human responsibility and the sovereignty of God. The Bible teaches both of these things. And if we get too far off on either side, we kind of make a mess of things. So if you focus on human responsibility and say, it's all up to me, everything's up to me, my health is up to me, my rights are up to me, all these things are up to me, I have to, I'm the one, you're going to be in trouble in a hurry. And if you do the other thing and you fall off on the side of the sovereignty of God and say, well, God's in control, so whatever, you know, he'll work it out. I don't have to do anything. That's a problem too. Human responsibility and the sovereignty of God, they run parallel right next to each other through God's word. Both are important. Both are real. But there's something great that happens when we rest and and ultimately knowing that God is in control and that we are not. It relaxes our face and makes it shine. That's why the Bible says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It sounds weird, but it's true. There's something very settling when we begin, you know, to understand our place in this world and God's place in this world. And that's when we begin to know what to put in our inbox and what to put in God's inbox. God is at work. Even though we can't make sense of the when and the where and the how and the why. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is at work, that he's accomplishing his plan, that he's in control? You know, Christians say God is in control, but do they really believe it? It's kind of like when the world says everything happens for a reason. <laughs> I don't even know what that means, but they say it to comfort themselves. Everything happens for a reason. And it's like, you don't even believe in, in, in anything. You don't believe in a sovereign God, and you're going to say that, and it's going to comfort you? And I think that's why we sometimes say God is in control. If I were to ask right now for a show of hands, I'm not going to, you know, is, do you believe God is in control? I would say all the hands would go up. But is that how you, does, does your life play that out functionally through the week? Do you really believe that? I love that the cross shows us very clearly the things that, you know, Solomon's struggling with trying to make sense of the world. And he's saying things don't happen the way they should and things are a mess and is God even in control? The cross is one of these, these instances where we see the greatest example of God's wisdom in action because it looks like a complete tragedy from a human perspective. 
It goes right along with what Solomon would call vanity, and yet it's the greatest thing that's ever happened in the world. Look at verse 14 again, where Solomon says, there is a vanity that takes place on the earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say this is vanity. And that's exactly what happened with Jesus and with us. The righteous one was treated the way we were supposed to be treated. And we were treated the way he was supposed to be treated. And that was God's plan for salvation. Isn't that amazing? So as messed up as this world looks, it just shows you again that God is doing what he wants to do. And he's accomplishing what he wants to accomplish. And salvation is one of these things where the greatest injustice that the world has ever seen was when Jesus went to the cross. He was innocent of any sin or wrongdoing. The sins of mankind were placed upon him. The righteous one got what the wicked deserved. And because of that, you and I can have salvation if we believe in it, if we trust in it. So thank God for his master plan. Thank God that he is in control. We need to trust it and believe it. Father, I, I just thank you so much for, for Ecclesiastes and for all that it shows us. Um, Father, we're, we're weak. We're, we're fearful. Um, sometimes it's just, it's sad to say uh, how little faith we have. And, and, and so we just call upon you, Lord, and just pray that you would help us right now to believe. Help my unbelief, Lord, as, as, as your word says. Uh, we want to be more trusting. We, we want to... Um, not walk around fearful, Lord. So, so give us just more wisdom, more insight, but ultimately to trust in your sovereignty and to know that you're in control and that your plan is prevailing. Help us to stand on what we know and not to focus on what we see or feel. Thank you for the cross. It says so much. It just proves that your plan is really amazing and that it's effective. And so, uh, Lord, give us the opportunity to talk to the people in this world right now that have no hope, that have no... Um, sense of what you're doing and and uh, Lord we just pray that you would give us the opportunity even this week to share the gospel who Christ is and what he's done with those around us and we ask it in his name. Amen.